0: In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least three bonus episodes a month. There is a Facebook group where everybody that's on Facebook chats books, and we are currently reading advanced copies of books and chatting with the authors pre-publication. I recently added another early read. For April, we will be reading Linwood Barclay's new fabulous thriller, Take Your Breath Away, and meeting with him on Zoom. I am in the process of scheduling several more. Thanks to those that already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Tony Birch about The White Girl. Tony is the author of three novels, The White Girl, Ghost River, and Blood, as well as several short story collections. In 2017, he was awarded the Patrick White Literary Award. Birch is a frequent contributor to ABC local and national radio, a regular guest at writers festivals, and a climate justice campaigner. He lives in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome, Tony. How are you today? I'm really good, thank you. Great. I loved your book, and I'm so glad you're here to talk with me about The White Girl. I have a lot of questions. I thought it was so interesting, and I felt like I learned a ton.
2: Oh, good. I'm good. I'm glad. I'm obviously intrigued about the reception from international readers because it, you know, it's drawing so much on local history. So I'm really excited to, to hear what readers in the States think of the book.
0: Well, that's perfect because you lead me into my next question. I normally ask about a quick synopsis, but because of what you just said, people in the U.S. maybe not being as familiar with some of Australia's history, I thought it would be wonderful before we dove into the book if you could give me and the listeners a quick history lesson. I was not familiar with the Aboriginal Protection Act and when it was repealed or the stolen generation issue even really, and I don't know whether others will be in the same boat as I am. So could you give us a quick summary of all of that, and then we'll talk about the book?
2: Yes. So we could use the state that I live in, Victoria, as a good historical analogy, and I'll explain why. So the first incursions into Aboriginal land, invasion of our country, was in 1835. So the so-called Port Phillip District, um, which is now the city of Melbourne where I live, was invaded by the British in 1835. In the first two or three decades of that period, a lot of Aboriginal people suffered incredible levels of violence, so there are widespread massacres that occur in both the west and east of what was then a British colony, the Colony of Victoria. And the Victorian colony becomes a self-governing entity in 1851. And a few years later, one of the first things that they do is to hold an inquiry into the treatment of Aboriginal people in the colony partly because they're embarrassed into helping an inquiry because there is actually agitation in the British commons by the anti-slavery society about the treatment of Indigenous people in this part of the world. As an outcome of that, what is established in 1860 is called the Aborigines Protectorate Board. And as a result of that, Aboriginal people are taken off country, taken off sovereign land and forced into a series of what are called missions and reserves, similar to reservations in the United States. And in 1886, the Victorian colonial government is the first government in Australia to institute a piece of legislation called the Aborigines Act of 1886, which is essentially a form of caste or blood quantum legislation, which divides Aboriginal people up into um, blood quantum percentages of biological Aboriginal blood, and as a result of that, Aboriginal people are treated in very different and particular ways depending on their, their new definition, which could be the terms that we know offensively as half caste, quarter caste, octoroon, etc. Now, it was important to say that because that piece of legislation becomes a, what we might call a national template for legislation with the establishment of Australia as a federation in 1901. So, I think often people don't realize what a young country Australia is. Australia is not federated until 1901 and then the various states of Australia institute their own forms of legislation to control Aboriginal people um, in the early decades of the 20th century. And you often hear Aboriginal people talk about living under the Act and the Act are essentially various forms of um, legislation that control um, Aboriginal people, prohibit movement and prohibit Anything from where you can work to who you can marry, etc. Those acts of legislation are not repealed until the second half of the 20th century. Some not until 1967 when a national referendum was held to grant powers over Aboriginal people back to the Commonwealth. So before that, powers had rested with the states. I think the important thing at a practical level and certainly as it relates to the novel. Throughout the 20th century, but not only, tens of thousands of Aboriginal children were removed from family under the Act and placed in institutional situations. Um, Again, in the United States, a similar outcome would be something like the residential schools that um, First Nations children were held in. And many of those Aboriginal children were then put into um, domestic labour as, as cheap labour. And unfortunately, many of the Aboriginal children taken from family were never reunited with family, although though some have been. And it is regarded as a shocking um, indictment of colonialism in Australia and still has enormous impact on communities today. And in fact, uh, many Aboriginal communities would say that this practice has never stopped because unfortunately at present, we probably have more young indigenous people and children in institutions in a percentage term than we did in decades past so we have shocking incarceration rates of our young people in both the prison system and juvenile institutions
0: That's very helpful because I went and looked up a lot of these things just so I would make sure I understood the story and could put it in the proper context but I felt like before we dove into some of these subject matters it might be really nice to have this summary so thank you very much Tony Thank you So can you now tell me about The White Girl
2: Yeah so The White Girl is a novel essentially that focuses on an Aboriginal matriarch, Odette Brown, who is around the age of 60, and the novel is set in the early 1960s. And she is the sole carer for her granddaughter, Sissy. They live in a regional or rural town in southeastern Australia called Dean, and they are a mother and, gr- sorry, grandmother and granddaughter who really live in some ways a precarious life, but live in a small town where the policing of Aboriginal people is is in a sense largely neglected or they're living in a sort of benign situation. And generally, they're about able to live with relative freedom until a new police sergeant comes to town, a man called Sergeant Lowe, who is very officious, very determined to continue the control of the lives of Aboriginal people. And he really sets about wanting to ensure that not only that he controls the lives of Odette and Sissy, but he has the power to remove Sissy from her grandmother. And then, because of this, Odette makes the fateful decision to escape the town. So, legally, she cannot leave the town unless she gets permission, written permission. So, she escapes the town with Sissy, with the initial aim to slip through the cordon of police by disguising Sissy as a white girl, hence the title of the novel. And Sissy is a young, Fair skinned Aboriginal girl, which makes her an important target for officials. So, going back to that history that I talked of earlier, fair skinned Aboriginal children were were often a very strong target for welfare officials and police because they could be absorbed into the white community and lose their Aboriginal identity. And the rest of the novel really is about Odette's attempts to ensure that Sissy remains free of Sergeant Lowe's desires.
0: I loved Odette. She is a wonderful character, so strong, so intelligent, so with it, understanding what's going to happen and making sure she stays ahead of Sergeant Lowe.
2: Yes, and um, I have to say that um, before I wrote this novel, I, I'm a you know a trained historian, which which sounds like you're, you're a trained seal or something, but <laughs> I. I have a PhD in history, and um, I taught Aboriginal history at the University of Melbourne for, for many years way back. And one of my primary research projects was to actually do archival work, which looked at the writings of Aboriginal women who had been incarcerated on missions and reserves in Victoria. And I looked at their writings of protests, their writings of self-determination, and writings for demanding the human rights for themselves and their families. And these were all incredible women. They made these claims on their autonomy with great threat of their own liberty. So I wanted to create a character that epitomized that strength. But also, I'm very lucky to have grown up in a family of very strong Aboriginal women. So my mother, my grandmother, and my sisters, my aunties reflect that strength. So before I'd written a word, I I was clear on two things. One was that my central character would be a a remarkable woman, a very strong woman, hence Odette Brown, and that the book would be a story of, of love and tenderness, even though she faces and has faced violence in her life. And of course, the community that she comes from have experienced terrible violence, which we know is a sort of backdrop to the novel. I wanted the heart of the book to be a book about love, about love between Odette. And her granddaughter, and 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 other people. So that was my goal before I wrote a word. So I, I was very happy when I finished the draft that I did feel that I, if if nothing else, I would certainly achieved that.
0: Well, you did achieve a lot because I don't like really grim stories. I feel like we're living enough grim stuff right now. And whether it's good or bad, to not like grim stories, it's just the way it is. But your story, there are are many grim components, and terribly sad components that have stayed with me as well, but I did feel like overall it was a hopeful story and it was a wonderful story of a grandmother and a granddaughter and their relationship and the lengths that people will go to for their families.
2: Yes, and I think that that's relative in the sense that I thought about this a lot before I wrote the book. So I could have written a book which was more directly or explicitly violent because unfortunately Aboriginal people, but most particularly Aboriginal women, have faced terrible violence living under sort of colonial authority. But I felt to do that would be to repeat a narrative which is very strong in Australia. So the Australian film industry went for a renaissance in the 1970s and 80s. And we started to get period films that did use and introduce Aboriginal characters to film. But invariably, if an Aboriginal woman, an Aboriginal female character came on the screen, two things would happen. One is she was rarely named, and two is she would suffer terrible violence and quite explicit violence. And what you, I think, realize is that that period of drama was just to use the bodies of Aboriginal characters, particularly women, for the I don't know, for the entertainment of non-Aboriginal audiences. So I wanted to be sure that I didn't repeat any of those historical motifs. And also that people, particularly Aboriginal people who read the book, if I sanitized it, they would then, I think, be annoyed that I'd shied away from the realities. But if I focused explicitly on on something like violence, I think that could be quite distressing. And the reception of the book, both for Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal readers in Australia, has been, I think, very similar to yours, that they understand the grim or difficult history that I'm dealing with, but they feel very, um, I mean, basically, I, I think they, they they fall in love with Odette and Sissy, and they have great affinity with them, and particularly old Aboriginal women who read the novel. They love Odette and they love Sissy. And, but again, I, I think if I achieved anything, I, that's something that I'm very pleased with.
0: I agree with all of that, and I think it's wonderful to be able to tell stories about people and just everyday stories. I completely agree that the violence happened and we know it happened, but I think sometimes that ends up pulling away from the rest of it. It was wonderful to read a story where I did understand all sorts of horrible things that happened and they're referenced, but not to have to just feel like I can't even make it through this book. And I rarely do this, but I cried when it was done. I just loved the ending and I thought it was such a beautiful story and Odette will stay with me forever.
2: Oh, that's good. I mean, I don't mind a bit of a cry myself when I wrote the book I people often ask particularly as a writer the two questions people generally ask is how did I feel about writing female characters predominantly female characters and the second one was did I find the writing difficult I on both counts um, I really enjoyed writing the female characters in regard to the second question there were two moments in the writing where I found a very difficult to write. And to be honest, I, I would find it very difficult to read those passages aloud or you know, in public. One is a very brief paragraph when an Aboriginal woman called Wanda, who works at a hotel where Odette and Sissy find themselves in the novel. And Wanda is an Aboriginal woman much younger, probably in her 20s, who has lost her entire family because of the removal policies and she, at one point, asked God if she can have a hug. And when the two women hug, Wanda really savours every aspect of the older woman's body, her, you know, her heartbeat, her skin, her scent, her shape, everything. And I wrote that paragraph knowing that many Aboriginal people who were removed from family often talk about the complete absence of love and physical touch in their lives from the moment they are taken for the rest of their life. And so that paragraph, it, I find it very emotional to, to think about that paragraph. And the other one is in relationship to another Aboriginal woman, Dolores, when um, she talks to Odette about her two children and what had happened to them. And what we realise in that sequence is that clearly the the loss of her children has really destroyed Dolores in many ways. And I, I found that um, quite difficult to write, but again, I, I felt I had to do that because while there are wonderful stories of reconnection and reunification between generations of Aboriginal people as a result of great work by community people in Australia linking families together, we do know of many instances of, of people like Wanda, people like Dolores who who never were never reunited with family and clearly suffer great psychological damage because of that.
0: Well, there were so many aspects of the story that as a human and as a mother, I just was completely appalled by, such as that when they put them into these schools and the parents were maybe in another building and they could only see each other for like an hour a week. And I thought, how terrible is that? You're right near each other, but you can't live together and you can only see each other an hour a week. And then the idea that if I wanted to leave where I was, I had to try to seek permission and most likely wouldn't be granted the permission. And then the whole exemption certificate, which makes you turn away from your own people. I mean, there were just so many components that I thought, this is awful. And then as a mother to have my children taken or like poor Dolores, I knew that was going to be one of the two that you mentioned, because I thought about her for a long time afterwards. And I don't want to spoil anymore, but I know, you know, Adette continues to think about her as well. But all of those things, I, I literally have not stopped thinking about them since I read your book.
2: Yeah, I think a couple of points that are relevant here in relationship to the story where a mother is only able to briefly visit her children. There are many instances of, of that in real life and many instances of refusal. It's also, you know, I know that this is a hack big word, but it is literally Kafkaesque if I could just briefly relate this to a real story which helped inform that scene. I talked earlier about the caste legislation. Um, It's so insidious that if you lived in Southeastern Australia and you're an Aboriginal person born in 1900 in the year that Odette is, and if you live to the same age as Odette, your legal identity could change probably at least a half a dozen times, possibly more, against your will I'm talking about here where you could be classified as an Aboriginal person, you could be classified as a so-called mixed-blood person, and you could be reclassified as a white person without ever seeking permission to do so. And I know a terrible story of a very strong Aboriginal man who volunteered for the AIF, the Australian Infantry Force, to fight in New Guinea during the Second World War. He was willing to fight for his country. And the only way he could do that was to be temporarily reclassified as a non-Aboriginal person so he could join the army and go to war, which he did. After the war, he came back to the government reserve that he had been born on and lived on his whole life. His children and wife were still incarcerated on the reserve, and he wasn't allowed to go onto the reserve to see his own children because he'd been reclassified as non-Aboriginal and he couldn't get a reclassification back to Aboriginal. And therefore this is man is you know a, a war hero um, literally who couldn't even see his own family and eventually was charged with trespass by going home so those forms of hypocrisy are really key to the to this story and the other one I, I I think is is relevant here it is about you know you talked about as a mother as a human is that one of the issues with this book that I that I hope resonates with readers it is a particularly Aboriginal story but Again, I know that most of my readers are going to be non-Aboriginal people so that the book is being taught widely in senior high school already in in Australia. And so I'm going to have a lot of kids, 16 and 17 year old reading the book. And of course, I want the book to resonate with non-Aboriginal people. And at the Melbourne Writers Festival two years ago, when the book came out, an older woman stood up and she said, you yeah, know, I'm, I'm a white woman, but I'm also a grandmother. And to read this book and to think about my own grandchildren, I find it appalling. So not only do I hope that the book resonates with people as readers, I hope that it encourages them to think about this history and to think about the legacy that we share. So it's a it's not just an Aboriginal story. This is a, a historical narrative of you know colonial Australia, and, and everyone needs to take ownership of it.
0: Absolutely. And understand today why some things are the way they are based on this history that's been going on for over 100 years or 150 years now. So a couple of things. One, you mentioned the book was published several years ago in Australia. It's just now coming out in the United States in March. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, well, I've had a couple of books published internationally before um, in Europe. I think this book, the reason I think that it's getting Not only wide circulation in Australia, but international publication is because, one, although it's a distinctly Australian story, I do think it's a story with with strong universal elements that you just mentioned in relationship to being family, being human. But I think, particularly in the United States and certainly in Canada, the histories of First Nations people and with regard to this aspect of history, blood quantum, removal of children. Colonial violence, it has a very similar register in the US and Canada. And in fact, I've been to both countries as a historian, in other words, working as an academic historian and and giving presentations at universities such as as Harvard, for instance. I've I've talked at Harvard, I've talked at the New School in New York. And each time I've presented my academic work in the United States or Canada, people have commented after, particularly First Nations scholars, that. There is so much in our stories that are similar. So I think it will have particular resonance for for, for your readers, whether they know the history or not. But the book is being published into um, Arabic in Egypt. It's currently being published into Mandarin in China. I know it's being published in Denmark, published in the Netherlands. And I think that when people pick this book up, it's a, it's a very clean story. So it, I think in some ways it's... It, Although there are some big ideas, I think it's quite a direct and simple story to read. But I do think what appeals to international readers is, is there's some familiarity, which sounds odd because we started today by you asking me to give a history lesson. And I think the history lesson provides context. But when we talk about um, the relationships between generations in family and the potential for forced separation, I think everyone understands that at some emotional level. And therefore, I think they really, the readers, whether they be Australian or international readers that I've spoken to, they immediately feel an incredible affinity and loyalty towards Odette and Sissy, and they want the best for them. And I think it's what keeps people reading the story.
0: I agree with all of that. And I definitely think based on the history in the United States and Canada, any reader here is going to recognize a similar pattern that happened here. I just feel like it's helpful to add in a little bit of Australia's history because each country unfolds a tiny bit different in the way things that happen. But I agree, it's a very universal story.
2: Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. And the the differences also need to be highlighted. So one of the stark differences in Australia is that although this caste legislation, as we call it, or, or blood quantum was legislated, Aboriginal people have completely ignored it. So that Sometimes First Nations people or even people in general when you go to North America, they might be a bit puzzled as to how someone's identity is formed so that in Australia to be accepted and to live as an Aboriginal person, it relies on particular criteria and that is to be part of an Aboriginal community, be accepted by that community and identify with that community. but there is no um, legislation or any cultural Ordering around biological quantum. So, you know, Aboriginal people in this country, you know, we don't know certainly what someone's biological percentage is, but whether it's 100% or, or 10%, it's irrelevant. So, you're never categorized as non Aboriginal simply because your bloodline as an Aboriginal person may biologically not be strong. It's not the way that we identify. We identify historically and culturally so that that's really important to the novel because you know, white Australia is often puzzled in the 20th century when questions are asked of people. People are asked, why would you identify with such a depraved community? Why would you identify as being part of a primitive community when you can pass as a white person? And although some Aboriginal people have passed into white society, most Aboriginal people are incredibly proud of being Aboriginal and their skin colour does not in any way de- devalue their sense of being Aboriginal. So I know that in some First Nations communities in North America, blood quantum is 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 a strict, strictly enforced um, category and that is completely alien to Aboriginal people in Australia.
0: And this kind of connects to what you're saying, but not completely. But one part of the novel that made me chuckle when Odette is making cards and the woman asks her, what tribe are you from? And she nods and smiles and just makes up a tribe.
2: Yeah, well, she, she gets the name off a honey jar, actually. Bilga Honey. And that was quite deliberate. And when you say you chuckle, it, it's, it's almost an in-joke for Aboriginal people. So I'm glad that you got it. And it is that there is we know through the novel there is, yeah, there is no way that you know, Odette is very proud of who she is. She's a, a living, walking example of being a proud Aboriginal woman. But what she won't do is be well, stereotyped typecast or commodified for the benefit of white people. So when she makes that tribal name up, it's to refuse the white woman's ability to turn a debt into a commodity. And that is a very common experience again in Australia. So it's not that Aboriginal people won't identify with a clan or tribal group or community group, but it, it can be very difficult at times when non Aboriginal people want you to I suppose, um, create a very essentialist identity, like a badge that they can put on a document so that I do a lot of work with artists. I do a lot of work with galleries, writing material, and and they always want a much more um, essentialist identity category. And I, I always refuse that. And it's not because, again, there's any sort of shame on my part. It's that um, I say, no, I, I'm Tony Birch, and I'm a writer and that's, that's all we need to, to, to do here, so that we try and make sure that we, we control our own identities and when I taught history, Cindy, one of the, um, something that I, I would say to students, and again it goes back to that original caste legislation of 1886, is that one of the greatest fears of, in white Australia, that is in, in, in institutional white Australia is that it may not be able to control the identities of Aboriginal people, which it it cannot do any longer. And one of the um, most ferocious legislative programs of the 19th and early 20th century was legislation that attempted to control our identities and to formalize them and legislate against our identities, such that I have a friend who did a PhD looking specifically at this ideology and he found over 800 pieces of legislation across the nation which was specifically dealing with the control of Aboriginal people.
0: I just find that completely mind-boggling and so unnecessary. And I just, I mean, that could be, as you said, someone's PhD. It could be many conversations. But that was the part I just struggled with over and over again. And somebody like Sergeant Lowe, like, why make that your entire mission? Like, can't you do something better with your life? But again, that would be something I'm sure we could talk about for quite some time. The other thing that I really, really liked about your book was a strong sense of place, not just with the Aboriginal community, but Australia generally.
2: Yeah, well, I taught creative writing for many years, and I taught a lot of work which was place-based. So I used to teach a course called Place and Landscape in my climate justice work. Obviously, I'm really interested in the notions of attachment to place. And the protection of place. What I did in this book was to create a, a fictional town called Dean. And I did that in a way because I wanted people to imagine that this town could be anywhere in what we might call southeastern Australia, but certainly southern Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. And I did that because had I set it in a real place, an actual town, people may have thought, Oh yeah, this is the history of this town and this town only because, you know, non Aboriginal people often like to think, well, this couldn't have happened in my town, it happened in that other town. Um, Whereas by creating a fictional town, it could be any regional or rural town in southeastern Australia or other parts of Australia, in fact, that was important. But the other point you raise is by thinking about places as a character, not just a backdrop, is that it's always been key to my work. All my work is very strongly place-based because I believe that the landscape, the places that we inhabit or our characters inhabit, have an incredible um, impact on, on what happens, on the way the characters behave and interact. And for this novel, I'd actually been to a, a rural town in Western Victoria, and people who don't know my state often think of it as a much more temperate place, but we have very large swathes of, of desert in the northwest of the state, and this town sort of sits on the edge of, of the, one of those deserts. And it's a red dirt town, as we call them, and what i did was i took some aspects of this real town to create my fictional town and i literally went home cindy and created a a map i i drew a map on a big piece of butcher's paper and i imagined and drew up all the important sites like dean's line the roadway that aboriginal people couldn't historically cross the old mission the quarry quarry town henry lambs junkyard so that I wanted to ensure that by the time I started to write, I knew this town really well. I knew it um, intrinsically. Some of your listeners may remember a wonderful American poet called um, Richard Hugo. He wrote wonderful poems about American towns, but he also produced a remarkable essay called Triggering Towns, which was a, a sort of a model of how he created mythical or fictional towns out of real towns. And I taught that essay in creative writing here at Melbourne University, and that model of approaching a place or a landscape that Hugo used in his poetry became the model for how I approach creating Dean. And that literally, in a simple sense, is to take aspects of a real place that you know and create a fictional landscape out of that real place, which then gives you the freedom to, to take it wherever you like. So it's a wonderful essay and, and a wonderful way to think about writing.
0: Well, I felt like I was right there with Odette and Sissy, and I could visualize the town myself. So I just felt you did such a wonderful job of bringing it to life. And then I really loved the cover as well, the red dirt, but also the bathtub.
2: Yeah, well, the bath scene, as we call it, well, there are several bath scenes. Every time I say the bath scene, <laughs> I think of um the shower scene from Psycho and need to say it's not the same. I have to say that there is a really important there's a real necessity in that bath scene that I took a long time to write it, even though it's only a few pages. And it's in that bath scene that we really get a sense of the love between Sissy and Odette. And it's very physical, it's very intimate, quite tactile. Um, that moment when Odette is, is, is washing Sissy's hair and brushing her hair, and Sissy says, I love this to her nan, I love this nana. I wanted to show how the love between a grandmother and granddaughter is not just emotional, it is physical. And you know, to think of being in a beautiful, deep, warm bath and your grandmother washing your hair. It's it's a, for a kid, that's a, a wonderful moment. It also took me back to the history of baths in my life, which might seem odd, but I grew up in an incredibly poor household when I was a kid and we didn't have a shower or a bath. We didn't have any running hot water. We lived in the inner city of Melbourne in a At the time, a really run-down suburb where I still live, which is now very gentrified. But when I grew up there in the 60s, we lived in a two-room house, seven of us, and we had no running hot water. And one day, our next-door neighbors moved out. So my mother and grandmother stole the bath from the empty house, cut a hole in our fence, moved the bath into our backyard, repaired the fence. And my dad said that he was going to plumb the bath. And my dad had no plumbing skills, let alone any other handyman skills. And the bath was never plumbed. But we, like occurs in the white girl, would occasionally light a fire under the bath and have a warm bath in the back garden. So I had incredibly fond memories of that. And I have five children who are all adults now. But when you have little kids who are similar age, my three older kids are very close in age. When you have a bath, you can't really afford the luxury of each of those children having their own bath and refilling the water because the boiler would run out. So every Sunday night, my three kids, yeah, when they were quite small, would have a bath together and and they all remember that with great affection as I do. And um, one of my daughters who now has two children and I have a beautiful bath here. So my grandson loves to come over here for a bath. He's only three. My daughter, Siobhan, actually launched the white girl for me. And in the speech she made, she she talked about those baths that she'd had as a kid. So the bath, both in my life and in the novel, is is really important. And as you said, we we won't give away the ending, but the ending of the novel in relationship to the bath and how the novel ends was very important to me as well.
0: Well, that's wonderful because I thought the bath stood out so much in the story. But now that you've told me your personal connection to it, it means even more. Yeah. Oh, that's great. The other thing that I noticed about your book at the time when I read it, and also now as we're talking about it, is it's not a particularly long book compared to some of the books coming out today. But one of my repeated mantras, I feel like, as I've read a lot in the last year, is that so many books are so long and could really stand to be edited down a fair amount. And yours is the flip side, like it's 250 pages, but there is so much in it that you've managed to just pack it all in using very, I mean, sparse is too, is not really the right word but but using very, I don't know, Spartan language. But you get your point across. But I never thought, gosh, this this chapter doesn't belong here or why is this here or this is so long.
2: Yeah, I, I think length, it, it's, I mean, I, I do think if you look at most writers, particularly if they have published, you know, more than one book, you will see that they tend to, you know, a, a writer who writes big fat books, so Jonathan Franz and all his books are, are massive, you know, I know if you read a lot of Japanese fiction, a lot of contemporary Japanese fiction, novels are very short. You know, you often, yeah, you know, they really are novella length, but again, they do everything they need to do. So you're talking about novels that might be 150 pages long. And I'm more on, on, on the lean side. And I think that two things guide that in relation to my work. So I would say I never set out to think I'm going to write a short novel or I should write a short novel. I think inherently my work leans towards being shorter and I think the two things are, are that is that I have a background in poetry and I, I published a new poetry collection this year and in relationship to language I, I do think I'm a sort of writer who you know less is more or less is enough and I don't try to over complicate the language or over complicate sentences or paragraphs and generally that's accepted as a value with the work. I've had a couple of critics who who, who think that the, the language is too simple they're usually older male critics by the way but I think that you don't have to over explain you don't need to to scenes don't need to be overly lengthy so that that's the way I inherently uh, approach my writing and also that people who enjoy my work do often say that you know they talk about the the term and I know it's a cliche again being a page turner or they talk about you know plot driven. I do like to move the work along. I don't. I don't dwell too much. I do have a um, inherent tick with my writing that my characters tend to be always on the move. So in all of my books, there people are always going somewhere. <laughs> so <laughs> they're always going home or running from somewhere. And I, and I think it's again it's the issue about landscape. I like to. Um, I get. I like to keep a narrative to occur moving through place. But yeah, I, I, I'm. I'm both as a reader and a writer attracted to the shorter form. And I suppose, Cindy, it's probably informed by the fact that I'm also, you know, I'm more well-known or as equally well-known in Australia as a short fiction writer. So I've actually published five collections of short stories. I've just had a new collection of short stories out called Darkers Last Night in Australia. And I'm very lucky in that sense. There's not, there'd be very few writers in Australia who would have that many collections out. And my collections of short stories they're generally yeah, well-received by reviewers. And to be honest, they they sell enough because yeah, the, in Australia, the whole issue is yeah, short stories never sell and yeah they're not good value commercially. But my collections sell enough that my publisher is happy and they, they, they keep allowing me to rotate. So I tend to do a novel and then a collection of short stories. But for your question, the the short story, I think, informs the way that I, that I approach the longer form of the novel as well.
0: Well, it just proves to me that short books work very well. And when I keep saying I wish some of these other books were a lot shorter and edited down more, that I know it can be done, I'm going to start saying, read Tony Birch. It can be done.
2: Well, it can be done. And I think that, again, I, I look, I, I, in Australia, I, I was, I don't like doing judging, but I, one year I was asked to judge the Premier's Award here in Victoria. And without naming names, there were three books on the by well-known male Australian writers. And they were each, I would say, at least 150 pages too long with very long drawn out scenes. And I, I was thinking while reading, "What? where's the editor here? And I, I was quite puzzled because these were long passages in the writing which really ground the story down. And then it would sort of, you know, the story would pick up again, you know, like 100 pages down the track. So. I think it is I think it's a bad habit that some writers some writers get into. I mean some longer books are worth the length but many are not. And I think that if you look at the relationship between writers and editors or writers and publishing houses in Australia I would suggest that it tends to be more well established usually male writers who probably have more control over their work than some younger writers. I'm not sure of that but my editors don't need to tell me to cut out they They do often, I think that I have a good relationship with editors and you talked about, you mentioned, you know, why is this chapter here and it seems to be in the right place. I did have a wonderful relationship on this book with my editor, Jacqueline Blanchard from University of Queensland Press. And I think people often neglect the value of editors doing structural editing. So in other words, saying, why is this chapter here? Maybe we should move this chapter down here so that we can move back and forward so you notice in the second half of the novel we move back and forward between the town of dean and the city it was my editor who really helped me think about that move back and forward which gave more tension to the to the novel so I, I think in that sense editors are wonderful for helping you with the what we might call the architecture of a novel
0: i think that's right And I think it just seems to be a trend to have these longer books, but hopefully it will circle back the other way. Because there'll be many times when exactly what you just described, the middle sort of dips down and you're like, come on, come on. And then it picks back up again. And I just didn't have that problem with your book at all. It was definitely a page turner. But on that note, what have you read recently that you really liked?
2: Well, I suppose in relationship to short stories, I have recently read, um, there's a wonderful Irish writer, Wendy Erskine. She has a new collection coming out soon, which I don't know the title of because it's not released. Um, I read her short fiction. I have gone back. I'm sure that many of your listeners will know Lucia Berlin's collection *A Manual for Cleaning Women*. That is my all-time favorite collection of short stories. I go back and read Lucia Berlin just to know how great writers work, and I love the way that she creates voice. She is. She is probably. Um, one of my favorite writers. And I'm reading, as more than that, I'm reading a lot of what we might call non-fiction. I'm, I don't want to bore people with with sort of philosophical pieces of writing, often in collections of essay. So at the moment, I'm reading an a English writer, Adam Phillips, who's a philosopher. And his book that I'm reading at the moment is really a long essay. It's called On Wanting to Change. But It's really a book about what to do in a world that faces some of the catastrophes that we're confronted with in relationship to climate, etc. And people may be surprised, but I'm doing that because I think it is informing the novel that I'm writing at the moment, which is in some ways similar to The White Girl, but in some ways quite different. But the protagonist, who is an older male, somewhat like myself, is a very reflective, if isolated, figure. So, in reading these books, which get me to think about the state of the world and what's my place in it, I'm able to consider how a fictional character might ask the same questions of himself. So, it's it's sort of, in a way, um, reading for research, but not in a direct sense. So, in other words, I'm not taking long, copious notes from Adam Phillips, but it allows me to think about how we think about life
0: as as fictional characters that's fascinating i'm not sure i've ever heard an author talk about it that way
2: yeah i think that i tend to read i don't read fiction to directly inform my writing in the sense of i wouldn't read a fiction writer and say okay this is the way they structure a sentence i'll I'll copy that or I'll, i'll do that it's both in a sense inspiration so with berlin It really is to remind myself what it is to be a writer and and what you need to do to engage a reader, and she does that. With the nonfiction, so I read a lot of nonfiction, it's really, it gives me, it opens me up intellectually and emotionally to to how I might think about. So in in this sense, with this character who lives alone and has obviously, obviously suffered childhood trauma, and his way of protecting himself is to, in some ways, remove himself. He's not, a, you know, he's not a hermit, but he doesn't emotionally engage with people around him. He really is sort of self-protective. And one of the key moments in the book will be when he has to go to a doctor and be physically examined, a bit like Odette in The White Girl, but in a much more substantial way in a, in a much longer chapter he has to give himself over to the care of the doctor. In other words, he has to almost become childlike as she you know, tests his heart rate and his blood pressure and examines his body and asks him, why have you got this scar? What does this mean? And touching him, he has to give in to that intimacy in a sense. So by reading these books, these philosophical books, it allows me to consider how might this man negotiate a world where he can't any longer hide himself where he can't emotionally remove himself. And he's going to be forced to emotionally engage and open up to the world around him. And, and I think the, the sort of philosophical essays I'm reading are really helpful for that.
0: That makes perfect sense. Well, I really appreciate your joining me today, Tony. This was a fascinating conversation. As I've said several times, I loved The White Girl. And I really love delving into why you wrote it and some of the other issues we talked about today. Thanks for your time.
2: Oh, thank you, Cindy. It's been really wonderful. Thank you.
1: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures.